Hello, friend. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. I'm so glad to welcome you into the same place. It's a place of inclusivity and safety for any conversation to be heard. The safe place began as a image in my head of a wooden cabin on the lake. My own place of mental safety. And I welcome you here to listen to discussions on mental and physical health mental illness and mental and physical disability. You may hear stories that inspire. You may hear stories that make you cry, both in sadness and happiness. But always told from a place of truth. And we hold dear the principles of love, kindness and compassion. Now, with that all said, it's time to hunker down, get comfortable, so we're ready to welcome you in too. A safe place. Hello and welcome, Erin. Thank you so much for joining. How are you today? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm having a chill day today. It's been a big weekend, so um, yeah, I'm looking forward to just having a nice casual chat. Yeah, well, that's that's definitely us, and that, that that's how we like to do things here. Um, so for the audience, very brief inter- introduction. Uh, not that you massively need one in my opinion um but you are a 2020 paralympian uh coxswain for for gb team you're uh not not just the 2020 uh, holder but also and, and correct me if i'm wrong here but the first person ever and only to hold paralympic um championships worlds and european yes yeah that, that's me <laughs> that's- pretty incredible so give us a bit more flavor tell us a little bit more about it yeah so um so I'm a coxswain so I mean normally the first thing I do is address the elephant in the room which is what what is that um (laughs) do you have a drum no that's dragon boating um so uh coxswain is is a really funny role um within rowing and you find it in um Paralympic rowing as well as um sort of senior able-bodied rowing as well um and essentially a coxswain is someone who is fundamentally you know part of the team you are steering um I have a microphone so I'm communicating with the athletes as well but you're sort of like um a hybrid between jockey because there's no getting away they're getting a free ride I'm not putting any physical output into the boat speed um but sort of I'm steering and navigating the race um you're a bit like a quarterback in American football because you're doing a lot of strategy um you do a lot of you are sort of the captain of the crew and uh, leading a lot of kind of the cultural um, and sort of plays on the field as well. And then you're a little bit like a sort of race desk engineer in F1 as well. I have a lot of data um, in front of me, which I need to process and communicate and, and deliver back to the athletes and, and basically convert what I'm seeing, feeling into essentially effective boat speed, which ultimately in a race will, you know, hopefully get us over the line first um yeah so it's it's a pretty it's a pretty niche job but it's a pretty yeah. cool one <laughs> how on earth did you start out um so I went to uni um loving musical theater and drama and that's what I expected that I would you know all the all the time outside of studying would probably be dedicated to and then in freshers week I went down to the boathouse, you know, as you do in Freshers Week, you sign up to about 17 different societies and this was one of them. Um, And I just thought, you know, I'm just going to give this a go. And um, 
you know, on this on this medium, you can't quite see that I'm five foot three. Um, but I turned up to the boathouse and they took a look at me and thought, hang on a minute, maybe uh, maybe the coxswain seat might be better for you than uh, right in the middle of an eight. Um, not, and not, not ideally seated for, uh, for a rower. In no, <laughs> no. A lot of my friends, I sort of forget how big they are and I like go out and about, you know, go out for coffee and like they get stared at because you don't see not that many women, you know, don't often walk into a cafe with four over six foot women. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for me, it's pretty normal now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just got hooked at university. Um, and it was just a great opportunity. Like I went to a state school um, and I, I went to Oxford. And so, you know, a lot of people maybe had experienced it at school. I hadn't at all. And um, but, you know, sports a real great leveler to be honest mm. so whether you've done it at school whether you've done it at a club whether you started um it's just a great community and I think I mean for me that's what sport is really fundamentally it brings people together whether you're a fan of football or you're playing netball it's it's a community thing really um yeah it got me hooked and that was gosh 2011 and not look hey. back <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's a that's a good old a good old length of time to be uh, to be focused on one sport in particular. I mean, I mean, I I was like you at, uh, at uni during my first degree, and I literally rocked up, went to every single sport. I think I signed up to American football, um, which I'd never played before, but thought that looks cool. Um, rugby because that was kind of more my sort of thing back then. Um, basketball uh and i think i signed up to hockey or something like that which i'd never played um beyond like you know basic school uh kind of kind of stuff um and i ended up playing none because <laughs> i got injured within like the first oh, couple no. of years <laughs> um but i had lots of good fun on the socials and that's yeah that equally as important <laughs> oh yeah totally <laughs> What, what what was that side of things like for um for rowing and Oxford because Oxford's kind of often seen as this institution that's really intense, really full on. Is is that the case? Yeah, I mean it was. I, so I um so I applied to Cambridge actually originally, um uh, partly because I grew up in Oxfordshire, so I was like, let's get a little bit further away from the parents. Um and I didn't get in the first time round, and so I was applying for deferred entry. So I thought I'll I'll take my gap year my now husband and I we were still together you know we were together since we were about 17 so we we went actually went traveling for a bit and I went to Oxford and so I found that first time particularly tough because I'd had about sort of 14-15 months off school and all of a sudden I just remember turning up being like oh my goodness I am out of my depth um I did history and English as well which um there's a lot of reading a lot of reading and um, yeah yeah so you get it and uh yeah I think it's a work hard work hard play hard sort of thing um I mean I think Oxford basically call their holidays vacations not holidays because you vacate your room not because you're going on holiday um that's give you the sort of vibe but like everyone's in the same boat um not an intentional pun but you know everyone's essentially everyone's in the same place everyone's sort of um just sort of I'd say everyone's got imposter syndrome, pretty much everyone who goes to Oxford. I definitely did. Um, And, you know, you just got to embrace it and just enjoy it. And I really, really love my time there. I think, you know, when I look back at the friends that I made are just, you know, we don't see each other, obviously, as much as you do. Life life moves on. A lot of them are living in London, but you can pick up and catch up with people 
after a couple of weeks, a couple of months, or obviously a pandemic. And, you know, you just click because you just sort of found found your people. Yeah, yeah. See, for, for me, I, it was second time at uni was, so I, I did history as my, my undergrad. And it, to be honest, I probably partied more than I did anything else um, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went back to uni uh, and I've literally just today started my third go at, at uni. Um, but my second was law. So I did that kind of graduate conversion and then the the legal practice stuff and that's when I found a lot of my people Mm. um as well as my friends from like you know literally first school um I've been really lucky in that sense to kind of um have a few people that I've known for like about 30 years um it's it's a wonderful thing when you can just rock up like you say after a pandemic where you've barely seen anybody and then rock up and it's easy yeah yeah totally and I I mean I definitely found I mean the pandemic was that was a time wasn't it but you know it did it did did really sort of um yeah for me sort of yeah solidify you know those relationships and I'm sure everyone everyone did a lot of reflecting over that period and you know for me definitely it was you know understanding the importance of people around you and, and the support networks you have is just huge and, and and how did you kind of go from being you know an oxford um student and and uh coxane at what so you'd have been late teens at that point early yes yeah, yeah yeah early 20s around that sort of age yeah um to then where you are now having now now been to Paralympics and hold, holding world titles and, and, and everything else, your long list of accomplishments. Um, I mean, as sure as, as lots and lots of people would say when they look back over their careers, probably a, a case of sort of um, happy accidents, right place, right time, and a lot of hard work. Um, you know, like it's one of those where um, sport in particular is not linear at all, but neither is a career, you know. You, I'm sure that a lot of people are no matter how old you are you're sat at home thinking what do I want to be when I grow up you know Mm. half the job titles don't didn't exist when we were sort of having those conversations yeah definitely. Um, we didn't know they did um so I when I graduated um I graduated in 2014 and I intended to do I had a place to do a master's Oxford to do um archaeology um as me and my friends like to um affectionately call it it was really a sort of procrastinator masters um to do another boat race um but I didn't have the funding um from the university I would have had to have self-funded and you know it was a difficult decision but it was the right decision to make that essentially it was it was not the right thing to basically um kind of go to a bank and take out a huge loan to do another boat race really um you know that then I'm not ruled out doing another boat race. race yeah I've done one and I'm I hey I can still do another um what would just be nice if, if someone wanted to pay for my master's to do it um but yeah and so I ended up sort of having a spare year because I was due to go to um do go into financial services at Ernst Young um that also was a bit of a panic I'd done a, an internship and thought gosh like here's a job they want to give me a job Woo. yeah um and you know I, I was uh I, I basically my parents as I said um 
not that far from Oxford. So I moved home for a year um, and ended up working for an education charity um, in that year, working working from home before everyone else was. Um, and I loved it. And that gave me the freedom and flexibility to basically go, well, I can get stuck back into rowing because all of a sudden, you know, I've left uni in this social um, community and then I'm back at my parents working from home. Um, you know, I think this will be really good for me. So um, my closest club, this kind of high performance to uh, my parents is a club called Leander Club, which is in Henley on Thames. Um, so again, a happy accident that that's sort of 40 minutes down the road because Leander Club is the single most successful club of any sport in the world for Olympic medals. So it has the most Olympic medals in any sport. Um, yeah. I can't remember what the tally is. It's nearly 150. Um, and it's just, you know, a great environment. It was sort of a perfect stepping stone, really, because, you know, you've basically got people there training six days a week, twice a day, um, aiming to get into the GB team. And for me, I, I didn't necessarily join aiming to get into the GB team, but I also, coming off the back of the boat race program, which is, you know, quite serious, quite intense. It was the sort of level that I wanted to come in at. Um, and, yeah, I, I sort of grafted there for a couple of years Ernst and Young kept calling every year being like are you coming are you coming and I was like uh I might come next year actually um and then it got to 20 sort of the autumn of 2015 where they really wanted me to kind of sign on the dotted line and yeah. they be coming and I was like nah I'm, I'm all right actually <laughs> um because at that point I was starting to sort of get my toe in the water with the GB sort of development uh team and and sort of things were looking good for post Rio um, when you often get quite a big turnover of athletes kind of after a games. So, yeah, I hung on in there and it, it worked quite well. And, and life in the kind of GB team, I mean, one thing I've always wondered, how do you actually survive? So you must you must have funding that, that backs you. Is that is that the Sports for England funding or is it lottery funding? What How does that kind of work? Yeah, so we're really lucky in this country that so if you're essentially the general gist of it is is, is if your kind of main um competition in a four-year cycle is the games then generally speaking kind of you're covered by lottery funding um and so your lottery funding is basically allocated to you based on performance so it's very much sort of performance driven um which you know sometimes is uncomfortable so, you know like when you're starting off essentially you've got to prove your worth whilst also trying to you know maintain a job or support your lifestyle until you sort of get to that point where you're sort of winning medals and things but yeah. um it is very sort of um it's very fair it's very clear um and so sort of in uh so I worked full-time uh, when I first joined the GB rowing team again with this still with this education charity and I work flexibly I look back and I think how did I do that but you just do um because I was essentially at training pretty much um 6 30 a.m till about three um and then basically working a full-time job as well um and you know you you work in pockets obviously in the day so for example a general day at training is, is we turn up sort of half six seven a.m um maybe you know stretching for half an hour 45 minutes we'll do normally a session on the water which would be an hour to 90 minutes but that's you know getting the boat down and doing the session yeah. debriefing and all that then um the GB rowing training center is an amazing setup. It's um, it kind of got sort of 70, 80 athletes there. There's, there's a chef and a sous chef. There's doctors, physios, yeah. uh, kind of technicians, um, coaches. It's, it's a full, 
kind of organization um so the best bit is breakfast because then you get to have second breakfast um and uh then you'll do another session maybe half 10 11 that'll be another hour 90 minutes and that might be on the water that might be in on the rowing machine and then you have some lunch normally have a maybe slightly longer break and then your next session will be about two and that will maybe be again another hour to two hours maybe lifting weights um maybe another ergo something like that so you're sort of getting home at kind of mid late afternoon um but you do have downtime because obviously you know you need recovery in between sessions and stuff so you can you can cram that work in but it is it's really tricky um but what's odd is you sort of go from which I experienced in um 2017 was my first world championships um it's essentially going from funding which you know was sort of not really covering my rent to then essentially getting selected which is sort of a you know, a nod that you've got potential for podium. Um, and so a couple of months of sort of, you know, okay, my rent's covered and maybe a bit of fuel to then winning a world championships. And then you're on sort of a plus funding, which is actually like a full-time salary, which is yeah. amazing. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one to navigate. And it's something that a lot of athletes sort of have to work on. And, and, and thinking about, you know, what do I need to do to get to the top? You know, what are the things, if you think of like a student athlete, you probably don't, eat that well your recovery is not as good you might not put the heating on especially now you know we're trying to save things but they're the sorts of things that potentially make you ill they're the sorts of things that don't aid your recovery so it's trying to really prioritize actually the really boring things which will get you to the top rather than that nice meal out or you know those sorts of things as well except it is quite an interesting thing in the sense that we're now in again really but we're now in what is probably going to be a couple of years worth of really difficult times and literally people choosing between eating the right things or switching on their their heating or not as the case may be do you think that's going to have an impact on athletes that are kind of in that early phase like you were at the moment and actually them getting to the the level they they could get to yeah, I do think it's a real issue. And I also think um, it's something that I think high performance sport is still navigating. Um, there's definitely been a lot done in the last sort of eight to 10 years on, you know, sort of supporting mental health and and developing athletes. Um, a UK sport who are sort of our overall sort of governing body have, have kind of shifted away. It used to be very much about medals, medals, medals. And now it's called sort of medal, medals and more, um, which essentially is you know, yes, you can win a medal, but are you actually leaving the programme as a better person as well? Um, so there is definitely investment. I think it's going to be a really interesting time to see how these athletes are supported um, going forward because, you know, it is, it is a reality. And, and unfortunately as well, you, you, you've got to train where your location is. So as I mentioned, we're in Henley-on-Thames. We're not, you know, we're in the south. We're in kind of the London sort of catchment yeah. area. Like, you know, I'm... 30 um my husband's in the army he's a major you know we've got a, a reasonable income and all of this I do not own my house like it's very hard for me to get a mortgage um on grant funding even though I've got a husband you know in a government job basically um so you, you do have to make those sort of um I don't really like the word sacrifices but it is sort of compromises and things like that off the norm that you might have thought you know your trajectory might have been yeah I mean it is Oxford is a really, or Oxfordshire really, is a really interesting place um, to live, I think, at the moment, because you've got 
Yeah, my my brother um, lives out in Tame, uh, so kind of just outside of Oxford, which yeah, lovely part of the world, but horrendously expensive. I mean, for the same house that my wife and I and my son live in, you're talking the million plus. Yeah, and it's just like over here, it's not that. Yeah, um, no, nowhere near. It'd be nice, but. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, it, it just isn't because you haven't got the people that are coming out of London with the London money, um, ultimately, yeah. um, pushing up prices for everybody else and making that certainly less affordable. Um, and it, I think it'd be quite interesting over the next few years to see what happens with mortgages in particular because um, actually it needs to be revisited because it is now getting to a point where getting onto the property ladder isn't just a kind of getting that deposit in, you know, whatever that might be, but it's also then how on earth do you get a mortgage? Because yeah. those prices are pretty crazy. Yeah. And that's only going to be magnified if you're a sports person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and also um, it was interesting, um, the pandemic sort of shifted, thankfully kind of, it didn't particularly with rowing, but, that's partly because we're a team sport, but um, there are other teams who, you know, ended up restructuring and things like that, relocating. So um, like a good example is um, the wheelchair basketball team um, used to train um, centrally and then they've kind of decided to shift into more like a camp-based system. So all of a sudden you had lots of people living in Loughborough and then they're like, great, well, you don't need to live here anymore. And they're like, uh, what? I own a house here and things like that. Or um, the Manchester, you know, where there's a lot of our track cyclists, um, yeah. they were redoing the track. So they basically closed the track for a year and they were like, great, well, you're training here, you're training here, you're training here. And, you know, people have got families, they've got, you know, partners, commitments, and it's, um, yeah, it's an odd, it's an odd world to be a part of. And, and I think a lot of the time you accept it as the norm, but then you talk to people who aren't in it and they're like, that's weird. And you're like, yeah, that is quite weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So is that outsider's perspective that yeah. you only, uh, only get after the fact usually as well? <laughs> yeah, totally. So, so you getting that first world title then, what, what was that like as an experience actually get achieving what you're, what you're aiming to achieve? Ah, oh, it was, um, it was probably one of the most, yeah, it was until probably this season, I would have said probably one of the, you know, like my favorite races um, that I'd, I've ever really had because um, we came in as a real, generally speaking, quite an underdog. So I cox um, the Paralympic four, but I actually joined the team. So essentially the way it works is there's normally kind of three retained coxes in the GB rowing team. Um, and you sort of essentially put your flag in the sand of kind of what boat that you are intending to cox for um and in my first season when I joined I I was in the mix um with another athlete um a really good friend of mine called Matilda and we were both kind of gunning for the women's eight um and in that first season I did the Europeans uh she did a couple of races and she ended up getting the seat for the world championships and it was a real kind of um moment for me when I was like right what what do I want to do here because as I said you know coxing is there's a lot of subjectivity around it um by this point we were quite equal. And then she obviously got a world's um, kind of uh, badge, essentially. So she was in a better place because we were both sort of trying to break into an empty seat, whereas now she's incumbent and beating the incumbent is, is you know, is, is always going to be more challenging. And I was sort of really thinking about what I wanted to do. I went back to Leander for a couple of months. And even though, as I said, it's, you know, one of the best high performance clubs in the world, it wasn't, it wasn't enough, you know, it wasn't enough for me. I'd had that taste of that international, international scene. And, um, 
so it was an interesting one and then and then basically the coaches of the para squad because we all train in the same place um we ended up sort of having some conversations I knew some of the athletes and and they were like have you thought about trialing for us and I was like I hadn't actually because I'd just been so fixed on this one thing and um as a coxswain you can be basically able-bodied um in para sport um uh in the way that you have stokers in cycling or or guides in in skiing um yeah and I just thought you know what actually this 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 actually could be a really good move for me um because it's a fresh team I've got the experience of the last year which I can really bring into this boat and really kind of do something with it um so almost for me getting to that first world championships was two years in the making not one um and so I was really hungry for it like really ready for it um but the boat itself is one of basically the GB flagship boats um it's been undefeated it was the world championships um this last week and that was their 13th year unbeaten now um so stepping into a legacy boat is pressure but also you know you want to make your own mark on it and um but we were real underdogs that year because we'd had a couple of our major athletes were having surgery and and so almost to kind of to step into the legacy is one thing but to step in and retain kind of the streak under you know everyone loves an underdog don't they um so it was it really was sort of a race you know a race of the ages and probably one of the closest races that that force had in a long long time and then you won yeah yeah I won and I cried (laughs) (laughs) um yeah I'm not I'm not a big crier but basically if I win races I'll uh, I'll probably I might shed a tear um but it was you you say you're not a big crier but I'm pretty sure on this in, this whole weekend or last week, you you've been entire in tears the entire time. Well, I just think it's something you care about so much, and it's crazy. It's rowing, like it doesn't really matter. But I think, I think it's you know, it's what you put your time into, is what you, is what you care about, and ultimately, it's the people as well. It's it's um, this last week, as I said, like you said, I was kind of uh, been emotional, but it's because you know these. I think, you know, you know how much they've put into it, like physically put themselves on the line, mentally, all the things they've decided, you know, make those difficult decisions to give up or to prioritise and all these sorts of things. So to see people do that and then achieve what they're trying to achieve, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. And did you find the difference between the kind of Europe, uh, European, the the Worlds and and, and the, um, the, the, well, the Paralympics? Was it a different feeling or a different experience or much of the same? Um, yeah, so sort of the Europeans as uh, in the boat class that I'm in um, is normally feels like a bit more of a warm up um, for the World Championships because um, our main competition doesn't necessarily sit in Europe. Um, so different events. Um, so um, lightweight double, for example, um, uh, or the men's four, like um they're kind of mostly focused in kind of their, their top competitors are in Europe um and then you've got other boats a little bit more like us like um the Chinese quads um both of them in the men and the women are exceptional and so again you know you've maybe got the Poles you've got the Romanians but but the Chinese are sort of leading the field in the quad so you know everyone's sort of coming at it in a slightly different way and then the world championships really is sort of all right the rest of the world's here now um we don't necessarily see particularly post-pandemic, um, we haven't seen sort of Australia and New Zealand coming over as much because a lot of our competitions tend to be um, Eurocentric. Um, yeah, okay. 
um, just in terms of location. Um, so that definitely feels big. Um, and, you know, it's over the competitions over eight days, which is another thing just to manage because it's a weird one. If you do really well in the early stages, you might have four or five days when you're not racing. Um, and so how do you manage your energy? How do you manage your time? You know, you still train, but it's, it's, it's not getting bored, but you also can't overdo do too much. And yeah. there's lots of puzzles and card, card playing and things like that, just to sort of mentally stimulate you and keep you entertained throughout the week. Um, and then the games are you, are you is like... in charge of all, all of that side of things? Is, is that all um, you? So the coaches pretty much, they dictate sort of all the training, the meal times, the logistics. Um, the Cox definitely, well, I definitely do. And I know that is the case with kind of the two other Coxes in the team is, is you, you take quite a big role in sort of building the culture and building the, the vibes, essentially. Mm. Um, I think partly, like, I particularly like to take that on because I think it's a key part of my job, you know. Um, I want to build a team that's supportive and, and, you know, that picks other people up when they're down and things like that. And part of my job, I think, is, is learning what, you know, we call it overextended and rowing, basically, if you're a bit narky, um, you know, why are you overextended? What's going on? And what do you need? Because, you know, so thinking about some of the athletes that we're in Tokyo with, um, if you're overextended, some of them just want to be on their own, and they just want to lie and watch Netflix and have the headphones on. But someone else, they might be having a slightly lower day, but they need company, they need chat, or they need to watch a film together so it's sort of knowing what do people need and then giving it to them when they need it um and also I think being part of a team and a successful team as well is you know looking at yourself and your you know how am I feeling out of 10 today checklist and looking at you know your mate over there because I might be like I'm like six out of ten I could really just do with a bit of space on my own but my team are over there is a four and so actually they need some company so I've got to sort of self-sacrifice a little bit of my energy here to kind of top them up because yeah. ultimately we're all here for the same thing. Um, so that, that was pretty tough. And I think, I think that was, that was probably one of the biggest things. So Tokyo, you know, was, it was a weird, it was a weird experience. Um, it was kind of, you know, I feel like I'm still unpicking it in my head because there was elements of me that was so grateful to be there because yeah. you know we literally had a point when we thought it's just cancelled and it's it's really hard to explain sort of you've been literally working towards this your your whole career mm. um and it's going to be this big thing and all of a sudden it's like it, it's it's cancelled and then they were like it's postponed and then you're thinking okay when to and all of this sort of thing so you know by the time that we we got to the point they're like it's happening but there's no spectators there's no this there's no this and and it was a game of caveats. Um, it happened and I'm so grateful it did. And there was, there was a real feeling of like, oh my goodness, we're here. But it was still a feeling of, oh my goodness, we're here. Are we actually going to get to the start line safely? Because you have to navigate, you know, we did um, a holding camp in the UK. So we spent seven weeks in a hotel in Reading, <laughs> isolating from our families, um, literally creating, you know, the bubbles everyone was talking about. But ultimately, you know, that's still a risk. Um, if one person got it in the camp, then we probably all wouldn't have been able to go. Um, you had to get through the flight safely. We had to do a holding camp on arrival in Tokyo. Um, you had to navigate the village. And we were being PCR tested every single day. Um, there's no slip up, no margin for error. Um, in a team sport, one person gets it. The whole team was done. So literally until we 
almost basically boated for the final. You didn't know that you were racing the final. Um, so just sort of, you almost had to switch off. You just literally had to put that in a box. But um, it was it was sort of bizarre. And, and I think, you know, this has definitely made me completely sure about why I do this. Because ultimately, I do it for the love of it and for myself, really, and for the, you know, the challenge. Because there was no glory there was no like you know and there was obviously there was a celebration but there was I'm so grateful weirdly that it was my first ever games because I don't know what I was missing um yeah. I think it must have been really tough for the people who've been to Rio who knew what this is what it could have been um and yeah so that's that's one of the big reasons I'm sort of gunning for Paris because it's the closest home games I'll ever get to Everyone could just jump on the train, come over. It's going to be a big party. Um, and I just want to experience, you know, literally, I like, there's so many cool things about the games, which like, is so hard to like get through, but like, like the food hall, no one talks about the food hall, mental. You've never seen so much bread in your whole life. Like any type of food you'd ever want 24 seven, almost imagine like sort of Ikea, um, you know, with like the sort of strip lighting at the top, but all these banners, it's, 24 hours a day there's like fridges with anything you could possibly want and then like literally lined the walls with every cuisine like kind of British so you could literally have a roast dinner at three in the morning like um there's British there was like obviously breakfast there was like American there was sushi there was like Chinese food like curry like mad because, dreams it sounds like oh, I like literally pizza chips um pudding like yeah it was mad um so it's all these sorts of things that like you know but on the flip side this is amazing food hall but because of covid um you know you're not mixing with other teams you're trying to keep really separate and then they had these big um plastic screens that she went all the way around you like this like like sort of you know you're in prison talking on the phone to um, someone on the inside and on tv um and even like that experience became normal and then you got home and you were like oh yeah it's we, I've literally spent maybe two and a half months talking to someone at breakfast through a plastic screen. And now I can like reach out and touch you. <laughs> <laughs> Am yeah. I allowed to do this? <laughs> yeah. So weird. <laughs> Cause it, I mean, it's not only that you've, you've kind of had the post sort of post pandemic experience. Cause it, it was really still pandemic experience for, for Olympics, <laughs> but also you must've been gearing up for the games in to be in 2020 and kind of expecting to peak at that point is that is I know in in things like running and and kind of particularly athletics they really it's all about that one race is it the same in 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 rowing or is it not as uh, as much of a yeah it, it is quite similar like our our season is very is very summer focused really we sort of do sort of do it's really sort of May to August May to September um and so um at the point if you think because sort of we were talking April when it got cancelled we were we were literally getting ready to sort of you know to go um so I got married um in December 2019 (sighs) snuck that one in um but hilariously um, as I said my husband's in the army and obviously doing what I do you spend a lot of time away and sort of January, February, I, I went on training camp about two weeks after we got married for nearly three weeks. And then he was away for a bit. And we said, 
you know, we've just got married. It's going to be a mad year. We're going to be like ships in the night. Let's just really like knuckle down these first few months and just enjoy living together and getting married and, and all of this. Yeah. Gosh. And then <laughs> we had a pandemic and we're stuck in the house with each other for like 18 months. Um, so, you know, we, no one knew what was coming, but it, it was, it was really hard to reset. Um, I particularly found it quite difficult because we didn't have a summer of racing in 2020. Um, and for me, that's, you know, as a coxswain, I spend a lot of the winter coaching on the bank, doing a lot of the kind of crew formation and investment in, in that side of things. Um, and that's kind of good to do, but it's good to do off the back of a really fun summer of competing. Um, so I came into the 2021 season in the autumn of 2020, really ready and pumped and hyped. And actually, I really needed to like manage my expectations a little bit because, you know, just remembering we've still got a year to go. Like it's going to be a long year. Um, and so, you know, I, I literally had a conscious effort to be like, Erin, you need to calm down. Basically, we've got we've got another we're not six months away from a game. We're still a year um, and there's a lot can change. Um, you know, we went into lockdown again that Christmas and yeah. all of that sort of thing. Um it was a real sort of manager, managing your emotions, managing your headspace and doing what you needed to do essentially to, to get through it. And avoiding getting COVID as well. I mean, which is particularly during those times was not a particularly easy task. No. Slightly easier now. I mean, I, I say that having just about a week or so ago had, had COVID. Mm. Um, and I mean, I'm all vaccinated, but it still knocked me for sick. So if you're an athlete getting it, that's not not going to be ideal um to say the right. least um, yeah some some athletes literally um one of the girls um got it over christmas um in 2020 and it basically knocked back her season to the point that she ended up not going to the olympics yeah because, you know the, the recovery and and absolutely rightly so you know british rowing and and um you know so many other sports so unknown as well um you know the impact it's having on your lungs and capacity and how quickly you should be going back to sort of maximal exertion they've been really cautious just to make sure that people aren't basically getting hit with long COVID and all these yeah. sorts of things, but it's really savage. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd be most surprised by, by the, the kind of what I describe as lung exhaustion. So just the, the simple things like, you know, walking across, across the house or up the stairs shouldn't be particularly taxing on, mm. on, on breath, but really is um and yeah i mean i'm, I'm by no way at my fittest state at all um but even then i should better get upstairs without without not losing my back yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's after the vaccination so i can see how that would have had a severe impact on somebody's season um i mean obviously fortunate that, that it was it was limited to to uh nothing worse than hospitalization all that sort of stuff because there's plenty of people that unfortunately went down that route. And I would yeah. imagine as a Paralympic um, team, you've got to be even more focused on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, environment. Yeah, and, and, you know, it was a real case of sort of trusting each other, really. And, and, and I think one of the biggest challenges that we had, um, and I'm sure, you know, loads of other families had, loads of other people had when you have people who are maybe more vulnerable than others, is, is sort of everyone's perception of risk is quite different um and getting to the point that you trust each other that you know that okay you're making that decision but I understand that you've you've calculated that risk and all these sorts of things because 
you know, essentially everyone else's careers are in your hands. Um, and that, that's something that, you know, we had, like my mum was shielding. And so even just, you know, calculating the risk to go see your mum, like, and, and all these sorts of things. And um, yeah, I think I, I won't, I won't be sad if I never have to sort of have those difficult conversations again. I remember, you know, at Christmas, we were talking about, you know, that time and my sister um, was living in a, in a shared house in, in Reading, not too far away. And and she was in that, you know, remember the tears? I saw yeah, everyone's yeah. blank those out, but she was in tier four or something. And I was in tier two, but, you know, we're a stone's throw away from each other. And should she come for Christmas and what should happen? And then one of her housemates got it. And then we're having to have, you know, these heart-wrenching conversations about, I don't really want to see you at Christmas because I can't risk this. And it was um, oh, such a, such a tricky time. And so, you know, to get to get through it and to eventually kind of, get on the start line was a real sort of yeah it was just glad to be there to be honest I bet I bet even even with the kind of muted celebrations um yeah. to, to achieve that I mean that yeah I, yeah I would kind of put that as being for another career getting to like the CEO of a of an organization yeah it's the kind of pinnacle of what you can do within your sport um yeah, it just must be the, the best, the best feeling. Do you still kind of look at your medal and and, uh, and reminisce? Yeah. yeah, sometimes it's funny. Um, I think like what hit me the most, partly probably because we didn't have spectators, is is um, you know, rowing has a bit of a cult following, obviously within the yeah. rowing community itself, and and people do like basically people like to watch rowing because we often do quite well. Um, so people like to sort of jump in on it for a week or two, you know, when it's on the telly and stuff. But it's not like it's not cycling, it's not athletics, it's not got that sort of repeat following. Partly because our season, our racing season, is actually quite short. Um, but when I got home, um, I think because we've been so isolated, what really hit me was basically like how many people care about the Olympics and the Paralympics and um that was really kind of emotional actually I I I wasn't I think you know because it's your own goal it's your own process your own thing and then you come back and it's people who I'd gone to school with or I I used to work at W.A. Smith's when I was like 16 were like messaging me and my parents friends and it was just like mad and I, I think I think I actually think one of the the best people to share it with because obviously we didn't share it the physical experience with was the grandparents um you know and that was that was particularly just really really special just sort of basically being able to go over and just like here you go and like get them to see the medal and the medal is proper impressive it's like it's um it's over half a kilo it's it's weighs a ton and it's it's really meaty and it's it's what it's what you want an olympic medal to look yeah, like yeah. um and um yeah i think that that sort of really really sort of hit me when i got home um was just sort of actually this wasn't something i did alone even though it felt like it at times you know so many people were behind you and watching and got up in the middle of the night to watch it it was yeah it was mad yeah and it's it's something that i think across people that are either in sports or in business or, or whatever, um, but where you're at that kind of elite level, you are surrounded by these almost the kind of butterfly effect of, of your um, achievements. 
and the thing I've always liked about it, having played a variety and, and I, mean, I play wheelchair basketball these days and, and get the same the same feeling out of it as I did when I was younger. And it's that kind of connection to so many other people just by doing something that you love. Yeah. It's just so wholesome and just heartwarming. Uh, it's, it, it, I mean, obviously, no gold medal here. Well, I say that. I did once get a gold medal in school uh, for a discus throw. Oh, um, very good. I'll have you know when I was like <laughs> seven. <laughs> Still, but it would have counted a lot. Yeah. It counts uh, yeah. a lot. It's all relative. Record holder for a year. <laughs> was then <laughs> beaten the next year. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was the worst part. It was, <laughs> it, it was like a long-standing record in the school, and then I beat it somehow um and then literally the next year somebody else beats it well, that's what i said about the four minute mile you know that it shows you know you showed it could be done it could be broken and then someone someone followed in your footsteps yeah yeah i'll i'll, I'll take that one from my year seven <laughs> yeah. um and then, so then coming back and readjusting to it's hardly normal life but um, post Olympic life, how how was that? Because I've heard a lot of people talk about a kind of come down after after that kind of celebratory period. Yeah, um, so it was a really weird one because we do a lot of work with sort of psychologists and um throughout throughout the year, not just sort of you know at the at the critical points. It's I actually think it's the investment in you know your mental health and all these sorts of things yeah. all year round that actually provides a support networks and you know safety nets and all those sorts of things when it really matters um and I had a really interesting conversation with him because I was like I'm just waiting for this lull I've not really had it yet um and you know it I I think I think actually like I've not I didn't really have the big down and I think that's partly because it was an odd experience it didn't I, I guess it maybe didn't quite peak in the way that it maybe does peak for some other people um you know when you've got all the crowds and you've got all of all of the other stuff um because you know it did sort of flow it, w- it was weird in its own way um but for me I think um I think I just really needed the time um more than I thought and I essentially pretty much the whole squad had off um between essentially coming back from the games and starts would have been like sort of uh mid-September um through to essentially the new year um and I looked at that time spanning out in front of me and I was like, what am I going to do? And then you just feel it, don't you? Like it goes, it happens. Um, yeah. You know, I went, I went down, um, I sort of, uh, my uh, in-laws live in Cornwall, went and spent some time with them. Um, I went up and stayed with my grandparents. I just did, I just did the things that, you know, high performance training slash um, COVID slash all these sorts of things just don't really allow you the space to do um I I'm a big um baker and cooker and I just sort of threw myself back into a bit of that and and I you know it was it was actually just a really wholesome time um and for me I was very very determined um that I was going to continue um that I wasn't going to retire so I think that probably is definitely also a time when people come off the back of something like this our Olympic team actually had a really tough Olympics um there were I think four or five fourth places and you know particularly in some of those events where they were really expected to 
probably medal and yeah. you know those athletes were potentially thinking about retiring and you get to that point then you're like well can I like should I what's the right thing to do and that's a real no one can tell you what to do that's so something that's so so personal um so there was a lot of a lot of athletes I know um were wrestling with that sort of what now um uh, but for me, I think because I always knew I wanted to go back, I was actually just able to stop and enjoy those couple of months before sort of then, um, yeah, pulling my socks up and getting back to it. And, and getting back to it, how, how was that experience? Was it was it the same? Um, I basically decided to go cold turkey. Um, so some people basically did. Um, so I was still exercising cause I do all the land training with the athletes. So I, I do bikes. I'm not, I'm not that much of a sucks of punishment. I don't actually do the ergos, but I do bikes when they erg and I lift weights and things. So I was still exercising, but I wasn't, you know, nowhere near to the point that, you know, I would normally be. Um, and, um, I just thought, you know what, I can either like phase back in, but then really December is going to be actually a bit of a challenge or I'm just going to go cold turkey and just sort of go straight in. So the first couple of weeks were pretty exhausting um, because you're also doing all the other stuff like the socializing, the, you know, the, the mental side of stuff. Um, but it's surprising how quickly you sort of get back into it, really. And it, it just becomes it becomes your norm. It's something, you know, so well. Um, and, you know, the nice thing about it was we had, you know, as I said, you know, obviously I joined the team after Rio you have new blood coming in, you've got fresh faces and it's sort of, it revitalizes the environment. Um, and, you know, really lucky that, you know, everyone that came in was coming in with a real sort of thirst to prove themselves, really great atmosphere, really great sort of culture. And, and so it wasn't too hard to sort of, well, I'd say I was sort of in the swing by February, but, you know, it did take me a good month to sort of, yeah, readjust my, my wake up times and my eating and my, you know, I had to cancel a few evening plans. Like I'm just too tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and I I always find that it, it's two two to four weeks for any any change of uh, of sleep pattern to to actually adjust to it. Um, yeah. One of one of the interest really interesting things that you were saying about the psychology um, uh, behind it. Um, so the the course I'm starting today is a psychology masters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm obviously slightly biased uh, in, in, in agreeing with you, but that, that work that you do throughout and for probably the years prior, not, not even just, just that crazy kind of COVID um, period, but it just sets you up for not necessarily better mental health, but it sets you up to be able to cope with things that come along that could otherwise put you into a negative mental health um, kind of position. Yeah. And that, that's really, really important. Um, something that I'll, I've been very honest on, on this podcast uh, before about uh, my own uh, kind of struggles with mental health. Um, and it's, it's something that I'm of the view should be taught to everybody at a much much younger age um than you know waiting until for me 36 and you realize oh so there's some things that have happened mm-hmm. didn't adjust to those that well um and then trying to figure everything out um that that that, that in itself must be a, a a really useful resource um kind of coming back into sport but also kind of 
for what happened uh, next to you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like literally what you're saying is, is you know, I, I think the, the constant sort of checking in on yourself is all about sort of, I think it's like self-awareness and resilience, really. And it's not being resilient in the face of, you know, you know, being blindly resilient, being like, I will be tough and I'll carry on and not talk to people. But it's just understanding sort of, okay, what what your pressures are and, and what, what do you need to do to kind of catch yourself? And and that's one thing that COVID really taught me, I was saying before, is, is you know, I, I get a lot of energy from other people. So you know, being on my own and not having that sort of those people topping me up really, you know, I really, I really missed it. Um, yeah. So, so basically, you know, as I said, I came back in January and I was ready for this season. It was going to be, you know, post COVID first season, new athletes and everything. And it was all going really well. Um, and I was having a great time. And then I was, I was out on training camp and, um, I was in the shower and I was basically, uh, checking my breasts and I've always been very proactive about sort of, um, knowing my own body um, and particularly with breast health because there's paternal history of breast cancer in my family um, and yeah I found a lump uh, it wasn't the first time I'd found a lump I'd had a lump checked I've actually had one lump checked twice because I wasn't sure that they got it right um, yeah. and they had um, over kind of the past three or four years um, and there was an element of me which was like oh goodness you know this isn't ideal but also I've had it checked before I know what to do um, the challenge that I had to some extent was that I had 10 days between returning from training camp and then going off to compete at the first world cup of the year in Serbia. Um, and I managed to get an appointment. Um, and this is where, you know, I was talking about openness with teammates, having a supportive culture. Like there was no secrets. I said, I found a lump. I'm going to get it checked. They were like, you okay. I was like, I think I am like, I'll let you know sort of thing. Um, got it checked when I came back um, and then I'm sort of arranging the follow-up appointment because I had sort of an examination and a biopsy and the, the, the signs were there's basically we're doing a biopsy so we just want to have another look but there wasn't sort of there weren't sort of red flags going off at that point really yeah. um, and they said okay can you come in next Wednesday and I'm like uh I'm actually due to fly to Serbia on Wednesday um, and competing and they were like right well we don't ever advise these these kind of consultations are on the phone because it could be good news and it's a five minute conversation or it might be longer than a five minute conversation. So I was like, I will listen to you and I will have a chat to the team and we move my flight um, by a day. And again, you know, that involved the team basically missing a day's training right before competition. And, you know, they were great. And yeah, so I basically went back in for my appointment and um I, you know, I, I genuinely didn't really think it was going to be anything until I walked in and in the appointment, there's a nurse sat there as well as the consultant. And I was like, oh no, you're here for my like well-being. <laughs> this yeah. isn't good. Um, and to some extent that almost softened the blow because I, what he was going to say was sort of softened almost by the, the presence of this really lovely lady um, who I chatted to afterwards. Um, so yeah, so I was diagnosed with breast cancer at basically at the end of May. Um, and you know, I caught it really early, um, which is great. It's, um, a type called triple negative breast cancer, which, um, you know, I always say a lot, often people say it's an aggressive form of breast cancer. It's not, it's just one that is a little bit more challenging to treat. Um, that's quite two quite different things, but, uh, my treatment's going really well. So I essentially had the diagnosis, um, and, um, flew out to compete the next day. Uh, in Serbia, um, because essentially that was, I, I think, you know, 
some people might have thought that was mad but for me by this point I knew what I needed to do because I was like right what are the options here essentially you're not going to be I'm not about to start chemotherapy in two days time you know I'm not about to have some sort of major operation nothing is going to happen between Wednesday and Monday when I come home um and I could either be at home and be in my own head and worry and see my team go and compete which is what I want to be doing um or I can just go I'm going to process this I'm going to chat to my parents chat to um my husband my husband's parents and then go do you know what I'm going to go and compete because I don't know when I'm going to go and compete again um and it was absolutely the right thing to do you know I went out and competed and maybe about 10 basically the senior leadership team and my team knew what was going on and no one else did and no one else probably would have because I was just like you know I've got a job to do and and that was a great opportunity for me to do something for myself in you know really a time when I could have basically really sort of uh, shut down um which was great and so then I came back and and then obviously the plans start rolling in place and things like that and um I essentially I'm having chemotherapy um and I've basically been having chemotherapy I started so I got diagnosed the end of May and I did some fertility preservation as well, which went really well, which was great. Um, and so I started chemotherapy at the very beginning of July. Um, and essentially this hard to treat type of breast cancer just means it's quite a long slog of chemotherapy. Um, so I'll pretty much be in chemotherapy till the end of the year. Um, but when I got sort of this, you're going to have chemo and you've got these preconceptions of what does that mean and what does that look like? And and I was like, if I can get to the European Championships, which was in mid-August, I was like, that that would be incredible. I'll be two rounds through of chemotherapy and it would require a lot of buy-in from my team and my yeah. doctors and my oncologist, um, plus, you know, a bit of luck that I would actually feel okay. Um, but I was like, if I can have that to work towards and I can round off my season there, that would be a real a real achievement. And so sort of that's that's sort of what I set my sights on really for the season and then almost did a, a deal with myself and my team doctor and my team oncologist and I was like look if you let me do this I'll then I'll step back a little bit from the rowing and just focus on focus on the chemo and they um they were amazing and I think almost because I I went to them and said look I'm not going to be stupid if you say Erin that's ridiculous then I won't do it yeah. but if you know I I think that I know that I need to live my life. I need to live life with a diagnosis. I want to talk about it. I want to be open about it because um, there are so many preconceptions. Um, and, you know, you only need to watch Channel 4, Start to Cancer. One and two of us will be kind of touched by cancer in our lifetime. Um, what I'm learning is how different cancer is for everyone, how different a diagnosis is, a treatment plan is, how your body responds, all these sorts of things. And actually, I just think, you know, um, the more that we can talk about it, be open about it and share our experiences from really positive to really challenging is, is just something that, you know, that's a really powerful thing to do. So yeah, it's been, it's been, it's not been the season I expected, but you know, it's, it's brought me, I've, I've had a lot of joy in the season and, um, you know, the, the, the days are getting darker, which normally everyone finds quite depressing. But I'm like, woo, let those dark <laughs> days come in because that means I'm closer to finishing active treatment. <laughs> <laughs> and before we kind of get 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 into the kind of cancer stuff in more in more detail, so how how did the worlds go and and did you get to the Euros? I did get to the Euros. I did. Yeah, it was um, 
it was amazing. I was, um, as I said earlier, I wasn't that emotional. Well, I was emotional that week. I actually had it all really boxed up. I did really well. And then um, uh, Matt Pinson, who obviously of Pinson Redgrave fame, um, is now kind of does all the punditry, him and um, Catherine Granger and Jess Eddy and stuff. And the BBC caught up with me in that week to do a little piece um, for the Euros. And um, I did, you know, I spoke really openly about it. I wanted to be really open and um, because, you know, I was, I was 29 when I was diagnosed. I'd like to sort of make sure that, you know, the message is out there. It can happen. It's rare, but it, it does. Um, and again, maybe this naivety that I had sort of going into the games probably served me well, really, that I just did not expect the response that I had off the back of this interview. And he interviewed me straight after the race and I cried on national television so I always think that helps they love everyone loves everyone loves like a teary a teary girl yeah Yeah. um and um and it just my phone blew up basically and it was amazing because essentially I was really doing it again like I said for Tokyo I was doing it I was doing it for myself because it's what I love um and then to have the opportunity to share my story and to it resonate with so many people um was just amazing and and I I literally had a whirlwind week. Um, I sort of did, I was on like BBC Breakfast and um, ITV and it was mad. And I just thought, gosh, like this is so important to actually talk about. Um, And it was, you know, for something that I went to do for myself and because I love to then have kind of a bit of a positive impact was just even better. Yeah, I I must admit, I I came across your Instagram profile um, because of a video that was getting shared, um, and it was and it was talking about about cancer, and it's some something that's exceptionally close to my heart. Because my mum had triple negative, um, she unfortunately caught it quite late, so it was um, stage three um, at that point, um, and it kind of spread already. So um, you could probably tell the the outcome of that was sadly she she did die in. Uh, Christmas Day 2019 um, so mm. the pandemic and that year after was a really weird year um, for many reasons um, but partly just adjusting to that and then adjusting to <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, so the, tough the pandemic um, one of the things that really strikes me with with how people deal with cancer um, is that more often than not, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is that the people, the person that's going through it, that's got the cancer, um, almost responds in a a better way. That's pretty slightly clumsy um, wording than the people around them, because it's it's that kind of you can't help, but you want to help. Mm. Um, but at least in some ways, you've got your elements of control so you were able to do the euros and 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 kind of own your your kind of story um yeah just just talk a little bit about about that yeah um yeah it is it is so it is so tough because I think I think you're totally right you know when when you are the one almost dealing with it you know how you're feeling and and you can sort of manage yourself and manage your own mentality and how you want to approach things but um you know, one of the things I did find really hard was so many people saying, how can I help? And I was like, I don't know. I'm actually not sure. Um, you know, one one great thing that people have been doing um, 
is sort of providing dinner and things like that, like yeah. sort of like a bit of a meal train and things like that, um, or, you know, offering to pick up groceries and things like that. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, uh, you know, it goes in peaks and troughs. So it's almost hard to predict when you're when you're feeling well or not. Um, but I do think um, I, th I think one of the hardest things and maybe one of the reasons it's hard to accept help is is um, definitely for me is is. I think when you have cancer, as I said before, everyone's cancer is so different. And the way you respond is, is almost like you get this umbrella term of, you know, cancer. And it's almost like, yeah. you know, dis disability or it's, yeah. it's mental health. And, and, yeah. and actually it's so hard to, I think, kind of, kind of retain your own identity and your own self within, within it, because um, a lot of people have preconceptions some correct some not um or they know someone and they're like oh I know this person would you like to talk to them and you're like actually no it's um I can't like no because there's too many too many people you know and and um too many different experiences and things like that and um so I think yeah for me it's it sort of I almost really consciously picked on in terms of who I would talk to about cancer in terms of the medical advice is yeah. was actually quite specific um, um, because I, I was laughing uh, with my husband quite early on because I was going through chemotherapy and um, again, really different for everyone. But the first sort of rounds of I had um, EC, um, which is quite common, the first sort of bit of breast cancer, you generally get this EC chemotherapy, often known as the red devil because it's this horrible bright red color, which you definitely should be putting in your body. Um, and um, I didn't have terrible nausea or, um, you know, I was getting a lot of other side effects. But, you know, people were like, oh, but have you had this yet? And I'm like, whoa, 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 don't tell me what I might get. Like, <laughs> I was, I was just like, <laughs> you don't want to know just... what's potentially no! it's like can we just live on the fact that I'm okay at the moment um and so it's really sort of picking your um yeah picking your gurus and trying to to pick who you're relying on and and then um just trying to kind of as I said just keep your own identity and personality in it even if that is you know you used to run all the time and you can't run but if you can just get up and sit out in your back garden for half an hour even if people are like oh it's mad it's freezing out there you know go and do it do what you need to do to get through because and that that's the same with anything really you know um and as I said these these kind of big umbrella terms can be can be problematic and it's trying to navigate your own path through it I think yeah big time I mean uh, you know, listeners will know my experiences this year have been mixed. Um, so my lower limb condition just suddenly got a lot worse, um, or at least that's kind of how it felt um, around around Christmas. There seems to be some connection with Christmas. Mm. <laughs> it's not going that well. Um, but it, it, I just couldn't walk. I just couldn't yeah. get around by the end of the day. Um, it, just wasn't legs weren't working properly and yeah that was that was just my my kind of evening for for Christmas and then slowly but surely I started to use walking sticks and crutches and and use wheelchair um where I need to I, I'm very stubborn I I should have been using all these things probably 10 years ago yeah um, but Refuse. It's hard to do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you say about 
yeah, the, the kind of the small little things for me anyway, I've been the biggest, just breathers. Um, yeah. So like just going and sitting out in the garden. Um, and I mean, I, I, I could wear shorts in, in winter because I, I don't really have any sensation in my lower, um, my lower legs. Um, so I, 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 I'd go out and I mean, I've always, always done this to a certain extent, but wearing shorts in like, snowboarding season kind of thing yeah um <laughs> much to my siblings disgust uh, but like it's all those little things like being able to just go and sit out in the back garden um i live out in the countryside so it's lovely you've got you know fields galore um and how important that is just to feel well, normal yeah yeah hugely and, and and that's what um, I remember my father-in-law just saying, you know, when I basically said I'm going out to compete, he was like, of course you are. Um, and um, and he was like, and he just said, you know, you will crave normality. You will crave um, the normal things. And so, you know, that's what I've, I've, I've done my best to try and try and do and build in, build in some things as well, which maybe I might have considered a bit mundane or might have been, you know, like, but actually sort of, you know going out for I live right in town and and just sort of going out for a coffee and 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 making the most of feeling good as well um yeah like I hopped out um Henley is um as you probably imagine full of rowers a little microcosm of of, and and it's also obviously at a certain time of day because they've all sort of finished training like two are all in town or whatever getting their running errands and things and I'd it was like the day after having chemo and I'd I basically was like, I'm just going to go out and just have a little walk to the shop. I actually went to Gales to get some cinnamon buns because that's that's got to be everyone's normal routine. Um, and I was walking back and I saw two of the girls who, they're not in the GB Rain team, they're in the development team. And uh, they were just outside a coffee shop and they were like, oh my gosh, some chatting. And they were like, do you want a coffee? And I was like, normally I'm quite like, I've got stuff to do. And I was like, yeah, that'd be really nice actually. And, you know, they sat and had a coffee and sat outside my husband texted me being like where are you are you okay I was like oh sorry I bumped into some people but but you know it was like make the most of feeling normal make the most of that yeah this is good actually because you know like I said today um I'm pretty pooped like it's been a big weekend I saw my family um had had a few bits on so today I was going to see a friend and I said you know what not today I'll catch you tomorrow and and so you've just got to you know embrace embrace the good bits and and I think be patient with yourself on the times when it's not it's not quite going to plan and that's that's not in the midst of a cancer diagnosis that's literally just day to day I think big time I mean self-compassion as it's often kind of termed there's that being kind to yourself allowing yourself to make mistakes Mm. to sometimes go outside and and or go into the cupboard and destroy a packet of biscuits in my case yeah Um, but then equally you know celebrating the things where you've gone and like for me going doing a workout um for the past yeah. year really has been a really big thing so just just going and doing that but celebrating the fact that that you've actually gone out and done it and, and you know that balance between forgiving yourself for doing things that you may perceive as not being great and then ex, uh, you know accepting and celebrating the things that 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 you that you enjoy and that you love and that you've accomplished even the little things yeah absolutely and you must find that 
those kind of little things, the normal normalcy. Do you find that you're more attached to that now than you than you were pre-cancer diagnosis? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's I think it's for me it's been about sort of um, sort of whittling down into the essentials and actually um, silly things like you know staying on top of the house, which sounds so dull and mundane. Um, like basically, I've thought, you know what, for this period, I'm just going to get a cleaner and. And do you know what? Because actually, if that's going to take away my energy for three or four hours a week, which I could just be spending with friends, I could be, you know, reading a book or something like that for that sort of small financial compromise to this. um, It's sort of, you know, and I'm pretty sure once once I'm back, hopefully to kind of fitness and and health, then I won't need to do that anymore and things like that. But it is just sort of valuing that time and making the most of making the most of it and it's just sort of like you're saying being kind to yourself and thinking actually what's the priority here and it's it's not having um you know dusty dusty shelves <laughs> it's it's you know enjoying time with other people yeah big time it's it's, it's funny you uh you say that you, you got a cleaner because i one of the ladies that i worked with in my previous job um she had she's got a, a long-term um terminal diagnosis and for those that aren't watching this um, that was with a lot of added sarcasm um <laughs> but yeah she first of all went and got a cleaner because much like you it was like well why am i spending time doing that when mm-hmm. i could be doing other things but then she started looking at all the other parts in her life as well and even though actually she she's in really good health um, at the moment and, and long may that continue, she's not stopped any of those things that she she kind of put into place when she was going through chemo because actually she still wants to yeah. enjoy her time with with friends and and do all those things that she just didn't do prior um, and it it seems to be a common trait that you yeah. kind of allow yourself to to enjoy things that are more important in life yeah absolutely not get tied into the ones that yeah a little bit of dust here and there it's not the biggest deal in the world no you get over it eventually (laughs) yeah definitely um just one thing i wanted to touch on if you and feel free to say no um in terms of the your kind of future and, and having kids and the um the process that you went into um, prior to starting chemo. Are you are you okay to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, that was something that sort of one of the reasons when I had diagnosis in May and then sort of starting in July um, was yeah, probably actually the the most stressed I probably felt in that whole period because so as I said, my husband and I have been together nearly thirteen years now. You know, a long time yeah. since we were we weren't at school together, but we were you know I was still doing my A-levels he was a year above me at school and um you know having children and having a family was always something that we always wanted um the reality is you know chemotherapy essentially attacks cells that duplicate quickly which um can lead to infertility in women um and um I'm also sort of taking these additional drugs which sort of artificially induce the menopause um just again as a second layer of protection um you know and and so we wanted to really make sure we had the time to 
to essentially explore fertility preservation. Um, and that was something that was stressful because basically my oncologist um, said, you know, basically I'll give you three weeks, but like we're not waiting any longer. That's that's my cutoff. And you go, yeah, fair. Like you, you know better than me. And then all of a sudden you're like Googling being like, can we actually do this in three weeks? Um, and I had, um, so I'm being treated in Guildford at the Royal Surrey, um, which is actually, I actually opted to go and get treated there rather than at the Royal Barks, which is my closest hospital in Reading. And one of the reasons is because um, uh, the, I'm being treated in a unit called the TYAC, which is Teenage Young Adult um, Centre. And um I just snuck in because they normally take people up to the edge of 30 and I was 29 um and they they've just been amazing and 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 I think one of the benefits I've really had throughout my treatment is is that they get they get the priorities of potentially someone who is under the age of 30 and being faced with chemotherapy rather than you know the average person who's getting breast cancer is is generally probably uh, usually postmenopausal um or approaching that age and so um you know that they've had their children or they've decided not to have children um and so we got referred to guys hospital um in london mm-hmm. and they were incredible so from i literally arrived so i had my appointment with the oncologist on the thursday i'm like calling around trying to get this appointment and then by the tuesday i have an appointment um essentially um to kind of discuss whether we can make this happen and we literally were talking about sort of 48 hours leeway of and that's if my body responds to the to the drugs and things like that and um so i essentially did sort of egg stimulation um which they call spontaneous egg stimulation because obviously normally you'd be doing it on the first day of your period and it would all be very structured over a certain number of weeks and months and we were like let's go and i'm reading <laughs> the um obviously as an athlete i need to be careful what i'm putting in my body and all these sorts of things and um I'm reading all these this you know like the documents that come with it and they're like oh well you'll probably be putting in 70 milligrams of you know stuff uh essentially injecting I'm doing 300 milligrams a day like it was it was a lot um but you know it was really successful I'm so grateful so that was on the Tuesday um and then essentially um I had um a scan sort of the following uh Friday so sort of like 10 days later um, and I had sort of 21 follicles, which essentially potential eggs that were ready to go. So we were like, let's go. I took some then sort of uh, more injections, a lot of injections over this period. Yeah. I've, I've got very good at self-injecting. Um, and that essentially led to I had the um, egg collection on the Tuesday um, and I had essentially 15 eggs collected, which was incredible. And um, we made the decision to um, try and fertilize them as well because they're more stable. Um, so yeah, my husband um, and I now have kind of nine embryos on ice, as it are, um, and that was on the Tuesday, and then I started chemotherapy on the Wednesday. So I literally went from sort of fertility surgery into chemotherapy the next day. Um, and whilst that was a little bit of a big week, it was I think it was a real relief because again, you know, we've talked about things you have control over, and it may well they might be a safety net we might never need to use them but having them you know allows you to go into this process because you know if anyone is experiencing any sort of medical um condition whatever it is and I'm sure, I'm sure you know you'll feel it as well with with um your low limb disability is there's an element of kind of irritation at your body at times there's an element of but it's also yeah. giving your body up to people who know better and going okay I trust you but like 
Ooh. And, you know, like I said, that chemotherapy, you're literally watching them inject it into your body and you're like, and they're taking out of like a hazard bag to yeah. put into your body and you're thinking, oh my goodness. And so for me to be able to have the confidence to, you know, that if, if I do want children in the future, whether it's that they are those embryos, whether someone might have to surrogate for me, whether, you know, all these sorts of things, that's sort of a problem for future Erin. But there are at least some um, resolutions in the future that, you know, thankfully the, the team at Guys were basically able to give me. And, and that's another reason I want to talk about early detection, you know, back way back, because people think about early detection as a, um, you know, obviously it gives you a better prognosis. Absolutely. Yeah. But also it's life after that. You know, if you do actually have early detection, you have the time, only three weeks, but you still, you know, it was enough to ensure other parts of your future as well. Um, and that's maybe something that's not really thought about, especially in young women. Yeah. And and I mean, as much in in younger men as well. Um, yeah. Because, you know, if you, if you aren't checking your testicles, um, you should be frankly um but also if you're wanting to have a family you need to be able to get it early identify it early and then there are plenty of um treatments or whatever we want to call it um to allow that to happen uh, which makes the the importance of of checking regularly and and early all the more important not that it gets any less important as you get older but it just becomes more, it's more, more real. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. And you're going into October doing a, um, uh, a, a charitable piece. I'll, I'll, I'll put it as, um, so do you want to tell us a bit, a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, um, it's breast cancer awareness month in October. Um, and, I was really thinking about, um, you know, what could I do? So there's a charity called Copperfield. Um, it's a UK-based charity um, who was actually started by a lady called Chris Hallinger and um, her twin, and she was diagnosed in her early 20s. And um, it's, a, it's a charity that's purely dedicated to raising awareness of what you should be looking for, essentially, and, and giving, giving people the confidence to actually understand what their normal is and, and things like that. Um, and Copperfield is, is one of the main reasons that I knew what to look for. Um, and I wanted to sort of, you know, use my profile to help boost their profile. And, and, and so I was really sort of racking my brains. And actually, it came to me because um, um, I'm taking steroids, um, you know, in the first few days to, to deal with the sickness after um, chemo. And it does leave you a little bit insomniac. So it's about 2 a.m. that I'm like wondering what I can do. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm basically doing a changing room challenge in October. Um, so obviously I found uh, my lump in the shower. Um, but, you know, when you're in a changing room, it's a perfect time to check yourself, you know, and in, how often are you showering and changing and all these sorts of things? Because actually the more you do it, the more you know what normal is. Yeah. Um, and Copperfield have these shower stickers that you can order on their website for free. Um, and I'm basically trying to get as many sports clubs, gyms, schools, basically anywhere there's a shower and you're willing to put up just a little sort of it's the size of sort of two credit cards, a little sticker that basically reminds you kind of what to look for and, and um, you know, keep checking for changes and things like that. So um, yeah, I've, I launched it a little bit, a little bit early, um, but you know, it was a good opportunity and um, it's been amazing so far. I've had 
um, I've actually been chatting to the charity because they were like, we need to have a chat about distribution because I think they've just been inundated. We've had kind of a couple of hundred people already requesting all the stickers. Amazing. So I'm delighted. So yeah, um, if you know you know of any local gyms or clubs or sports, you know, is, is getting, they're free to order. You can just get them, stick them up and it just reminds you of what to look for. So sounds it sounds like a good way to to focus your uh, your your energy um and well frankly it's something that will allow people to remember to to copper feel um uh, in that um yeah i think that's that's an amazing use of your time um always like is, a project <laughs> yeah well why not why not um you, you definitely um you definitely strike me as someone that, that wants to keep busy, keep active and, and keep on going rather than the, the, the alternative of, well, not, um, and obviously some people can't do it because of, uh, of r- horrible reactions to chemo. Um, mm. so I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased that you're not experiencing as much of those. Um, and I, I completely get the insomnia on steroids. Yeah. Um, so I, I have to have them a few times a year. <laughs> take them too late you're not yeah. sleeping no you're not going to sleep so yeah you've got to be on it <laughs> yeah amazing um just before we wrap up I, I ask everybody um so every guest on I ask two questions of um so the first one is uh thinking back to your five-year-old self um obviously influenced by my five-year-old son mm-hmm. um what bit of advice would you give to yourself and, and a little bit about why Great question. Um, I'd say just try new things. Um, and, um, you know, don't be afraid to sort of do things you're not going to be very good at. Um, I was a super, still am competitive person. And, um, you know, almost fear of failure and fear of, of, not doing well at something would potentially kind of make me withdraw. I always wanted to be the banker in Monopoly. Uh, so I'd just give out the money rather than in case I'd risk losing and my parents forced me to play. <laughs> um, and, you know, basically, you know, if I look back at my career and look back at, you know, I definitely started to get over that feel of failure because, you know, I didn't get into Cambridge, but I went to Oxford. And if I hadn't gone to Oxford, you know, would I have ended up going to Leander and all these sorts of things. And, and again, you know, I, I didn't get into the women's eight in that first year of being on the GB team, but that didn't mean that I, um, you know, I, I, I didn't stop. Um, so, you know, basically don't be afraid of failure and, and to basically give things a go. And if, if you get things wrong, it, it'll all work out in the end. Amazing. I love that. Um, and then the other one, and you, you're going to have to just pretend for a moment that I am the best chef in the world can cook absolutely anything and it's of the highest standard and quality um and we're thinking about a dinner party here so there's there's four chairs that are empty um so first of all what would you have me cook and second Mm -hmm. of all who would fill the four chairs living dead um what whatever you uh whatever you want yeah great um so I definitely have to have my husband there because he'd kill me if I said if I didn't include him. Um, but no, he's he's you know he's my best mate, so he's he would definitely be there. Um, yeah, and then um, I'd actually I think I'd really like to have um, I think I'd like to have my three grandparents as well. Um, yeah. um, to my uh, my granddad's um, is um, still with us, but my nana uh, recently, really recently passed away, and then my my mum's mum passed away. Um, 
gosh, about 13, 14 years ago. And, and they were just, um, you know, I, I look back and it's something I really do think about is grandparents are great. <laughs> I had such, you know, I just feel so blessed to have, have spent the time that I've had with them. And I still have my granddad and, um, and, you know, they're just, they're your biggest cheerleaders. And so I definitely, you know, family is something that's so important to me. So they'd, they'd definitely all be there. Um, and then in terms of food, um, I think some of like, you know, the, the hearty, the best foods that you kind of come back to, um, would, it would probably be some like unbelievable steak with yeah. like triple, triple cooked chips and enough peppercorn sauce that my husband doesn't start to steal mine because he always like, you can start to see the chips, like getting <laughs> yeah. back into your pot. That's um, my wife for, for, for us. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah and then for pudding I thought about this before there was this um uh it was at my husband's uncle's he would took us out for dinner I can't remember where it was but it's just like this white chocolate panna cotta with these like berries which I I've always been you know you've always been trying to find that dessert again and I've never quite had it so um yeah I'm not a big starter person because as you can imagine as a weighed athlete I can't do three three courses which is why I've scrimped, scrimped on the starter but um, yeah, good steak, good glass of red wine, um, and then maybe an espresso martini with um, uh, with a panna cotta. It is all yours at that, <laughs> uh, at that dinner table, um, and I, I think it says a lot about about you and your um, your kind of good nature that you've got your your grandparents uh, surrounding you. Um, and I wholeheartedly agree with that they are they are the best um, the best people. Um, yeah. Yeah, by by a long a long stretch. Um, Aaron, thank you so much um, for for kind of coming on and and uh, and chatting to me uh, today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Um, so yeah, really from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Uh, thank you for raising uh, the awareness as well that you are. So I think it's really it's really been, important. It's been lovely to chat. Thank you so much. Good. Well, I I always finish off just uh, sending you love, compassion and uh, and kindness so i'll send send all that your way thank you so much well thank you friends that's all we've got time for today i'm sure you have enjoyed uh, today's episode and if you did please make sure you rate uh, the episode and the show's five stars on whatever platform you might be listening on and of course please share your own stories and your own um kind of thoughts and feelings of the episodes in the reviews you can also find me um, on i am gavin clark and that's clark with an e over on instagram and you can search for the safe place uh, on there too it's a safe place podcast but for now i'll send you away with love kindness and compassion Speak soon.